I believe we stopped at uh, page 247, the middle paragraph. Why not merely say that capitalism? Is that about anyone have a different place by chance? Cool. Um, then I will go ahead and uh, get us going. Uh, I have to do my intro, though, because we have our podcast going in the background and the people at home which are just dying for me to say what I always say, which is, welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective Continued Reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today we are continuing Chapter 3, Section 10, Capitalist Representation. Uh, we are going to be continuing off from where we left off yesterday, hoping to burn through the rest of this section. And uh, with any luck, we will uh, get something going here for a review session uh, if we need it. So for now, let's dive in. Uh, we are on page 247 of my reading. You're free to uh, tune into YouTube. If you're already on YouTube, I've got it up on the screen. Uh, but it goes... Why not merely say that capitalism replaces one code with another, that it carries into effect a new type of coding? Well, for two reasons, one of which represents a kind of moral impossibility, the other a logical impossibility. All of the cruelties and terrors meet in the pre-capitalist formations. Some fragments of the signifying chain are stuck by secrecy, secret societies or initiation groups. But there is never anything in these societies that is, strictly speaking, unavowable. It is with the thing, capitalism, that the unavowable begins. There is not a single economic or financial operation that, assuming it is translated in terms of a code, would not lay bare its own unavowable nature, that is, its intrinsic perversion or essential cynicism. The age of bad conscience is also the age of pure cynicism. But in point of fact, it is impossible to code such operations. In the first place, a code determines the respective qualities of the flows passing through the socius. For example, the three circuits of consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children. The characteristic object of codes is therefore to establish necessarily indirect relations among these qualified and therefore incommensurable codes. Such relations indeed imply a quantitative siphoning off of portions of the different sorts of flows, but these quantities do not enter into equivalences that would presuppose an unlimited something. They simply form composites that are themselves qualitative, essentially mobile and limited, where differences between the elements compensate the disequilibrium, whence the relationship of prestige and consumption in the block of finite debt. So let's start with something I fully don't grasp, and I'm going to start asking questions, as has been the process for this section. Uh, the opening here, uh, I'm not going to go over literally the opening, but the line uh, where they talk about there is not a single economic or financial operation that, assuming it is translated in terms of a code, would not lay bare its own unavowable nature. What do they mean by unavowable here? Is that a... It's just an awkward word for this. I don't know. Am I alone in thinking that? So I, I sort of was thinking that unavowable was setting up the, um, cause they're going to talk about how Oedipus is like a properly capitalist sort of, uh, aspect of psychiatry. Right. And so I thought unavowable was sort of setting up how these sort of conjunctions of decoded flows set up the sort of unavowable Oedipus complex. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it, well, it's so it, 
I mean, I think that's what they're doing. But specifically here, the term unavailable is awkward to me. I mean, not only to say because it's an awkward word, but specifically the term means uh, thing I can't speak of with confidence, thing I can't acknowledge the existence of. Uh, It's unavailable. Uh, I can't. Uh, it's mission impossible. <laughs> if you die on the if you die on the mission, you will not be avowed. It's uh, it's that. What when they're talking about that? Are we talking about as they move forward in the in the paragraph? And they're talking about the perversion or essential cynicism, the the nature of everything that happens within capital, the way that codes work, and the way that uh, capitalism replaces these codes, the nature of that at its core is something we can't admit, we can't talk to, because uh, as they go on, the essence of how we have to talk about codes is in such deep multi-dimensional relations of things to each other that there's no way for us to actually talk about without completely destroying the code itself. Am I? Maybe I'm just rambling. Oh, that's actually a good question. I think maybe um, I'm not sure I have a good answer because I, I, I think I understand your question is like if describing capitalism is unavowable, like what does that mean? Because they're going to go on to describe the sort of unavowable core of like what makes capitalism function. Which means that it is at least at some level avowable. <laughs> I mean, it it has to be. Um, it's uh, it's uh, Dan in our uh, YouTube chat actually says it, is it that it's unspeakable? Is it is it more that it's that um, sort of a forbidden thing to talk about? Uh, the same way, uh, uh, not to I, I always go back to Zizek. Goddamn, people hate when I do this. But uh, Zizek talks about uh, that there's uh, laws, and then there's laws that are we can't speak of. Uh, they're unavowable. The way that something operates, we kind of know and we have a sense of, but the moment we've spoken it, we've actually ruined the thing. Uh, that feels more, uh, I don't know, emotionally or spiritually what they're talking about here when they say things like, uh, such relations indeed imply a quantitative siphoning off of portions of the flows, but these quantities do not enter into equivalences that would presuppose an unlimited something. Uh, that there is... a uh, sort of natural uh, uh, taboo, I think. Taboo is a good word for it, Dan. Uh, but I don't know. That that feels like what they're trying to say here, but it's it's awkward wording. Um, I think I think that's that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's part of it. I think that maybe there's another part with the word unavowable where because they talk about you know, you can't have it be coded, right? And so in a coded thing, you you might have things be secret. Uh, they talk about secret societies. Um, this paragraph has literally the only three uses of unavailable in the entire book. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, and it, it, there's actually a really good chance it's a translation thing as well. Uh, because when that happens, that tends to be something that's awkward i'll i'll, I'll hit up our, our resident uh, sort of translators uh, lou and you have the german edition there by chance yeah i i've looked it up and i think your characterization of unavailable um fits with the german translation okay interesting so it's so the essentially that's 
I mean, that flows. The, the second sentence, all cruelties and terrors meet in the pre-capitalist formations. Fragments of the signifying chain are struck by secrecy, secret societies. But there's never anything in these societies that is unavailable. However, capitalism, that's where unavailable begins. It's it, the secrets, the, the way we can't talk through these things. So that's probably the meaning of, I'm going to just go with that's the meaning of this uh, section, this paragraph. I'm looking at uh, the next little phrase there after the second time he uses it, they use it. So lay bare its own unavailable nature. That is its intrinsic perversion or essential cynicism. So maybe that's like a kind of a definition for what unavailable is. Um, I guess with a perversion, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the role of the family uh, sort of as like this instrument of capitalism. And uh, I'm not sure what cynicism would be exactly. Maybe something like, I think we saw yesterday, you know, the way any kind of formations are, uh, capitalism just exploits them, just makes them into, um, you know, basically money, money-making machines. Um, so that might help. Well, and I think there's there's a level also, if, if we want to just talk about the things we don't discuss in capitalism, even though we do to a point, but let's talk about uh, the average person, what they're comfortable discussing, their own just general unhappiness within the system, the, the alienation that they suffer, the depression. No one talks about these things. The, 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 the intrinsic perversion of the system that automatically separates us from our own production, that separates us from our own reality, that alienates us. I mean, if we want to just take the classic Marxist sort of look at what is the perversion and cynicism, that's a thing my dad for sure doesn't want to fucking talk about. So the feel it, yeah, maybe we're spending too much time. I'm going to, I'm going to move on to the next paragraph. Um, and uh, just real quick, Petite, I, I adore Zizek. The reason most people here hate him is because he, he fucking really hates to lose. And uh, actually, I don't really know if he even really spent a lot of time spending time reading it. Deleuze shits all over Lacan as well. So it's welcome to philosophy. They all shit on each other. Um, but it's, as Zizek would say, the type of shit, that's what matters. Um, all of these code characteristics, indirect, qualitative, and limited, are sufficient to show that a code is not and never can never be economic. On the contrary, it expresses the apparent objective movement according to which the economic forces or productive connections are attributed to an extra economic instance as though they emanated from it, an instance that serves as a support and an agent of, of inscription. That is what Althusser and Balabar show so well, how juridical and political relations are determined as dominant in the case of feudalism, for example, because surplus labor as a form of surplus value constitutes a flux that is qualitatively and temporarily distinct from that of labor, and consequently must enter into a composite that is itself qualitative and implies non-economic factors. Or the way the Octonus relations of alliance and filiation are determined as dominant in the so-called primitive societies, where the economic forces and flows are inscribed on the full body of the earth and are attributed to it. In short, there is a code where a full body as an instance of anti-production falls back on the economy that it appropriates. That is why the sign of desire as an economic sign that consists in producing and breaking flows is accompanied by a sign 
of necessarily extra economic power, although it causes and effects its causes and effects lie within the economy. For example, the sign of alliance in relation to the power of the creditor. Or, what amounts to the same thing, surplus value here is determined as a surplus value of code. Hence, the code relation is not only indirect, qualitative, and limited. Because of these very characteristics, it is also extra economic, and by virtue of this fact, engineers the couplings between qualified flows. Consequently, it implies a system of collective appraisal and evaluation and a set of organs of perception, or more precisely, of belief, as a condition of existence and survival of the society in question. Thus, the collective investment of organs that causes men to be directly coded and the appraising eye as we have analyzed it in the primitive system. It should be noted that these general traits characterizing a code are rediscovered precisely in what today is called a genetic code, not because it depends on the effect on an effect of a signifier, but on the contrary, because the chain it constitutes is only signifying in a secondary way, insofar as it calls into play couplings between qualified flows, interactions that are exclusively indirect, qualitative composites that are essentially limited, and organs of perception, and extra chemical factors that select and appropriate the cellular connections. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm a little confused about that last sentence, kind of particularly. Um, it really, seems to one? sound like the rest yeah. of them are great. The rest well, of them are cool. I can offer. I can offer a bit about what I, I happened to read the section on the body without organs right before we did this back in chapter one, and the way that they're talking about this sort of the full body falling back on economic forces and appropriating them uh, makes sense uh, in terms of like that idea that they outlined in that first chapter where in, in, in the sort of previous societies that they sketched out, they sketched out a government would take the sort of, you know, the goods, right. Sort of the couplings coming from the economic up, right. The octochthonous connections uh, of alliance and affiliation. And then, you know, that economic power would be there, but they would you know, recast it in a way that was not economic, right. So it'd be about lines of families or it'd be about the power of the despot, the sort of uh, the feudal Lord or whatever. And so that part kind of makes sense to me, but the genetic code part where they seem to imply that the genetic code is a parallel to the way that bodies were coded in the primitive societies that they talk about is a little confusing to me because I'm not sure that's what they actually mean, but it's what it sounds like they're saying. Well, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to help you with that final very long sentence that you have an issue with until I actually get a little bit more help with uh, the previous uh, sentence, actually. Uh, the, the, the line, consequently, it implies a system of collective appraisal and evaluation and a set of organs of perception, or more precisely, belief, as a condition of existence and survival of the society in question. Um, uh, they say, thus, the collective investment of organs that causes men to be directly coded in the appraising eye as we've analyzed it in the primitive system. The, the appraising eye, uh, what? They, I don't remember that as, as it in the primitive system. Are, are they talking about the, 
the way that there is a societal look at what's happening uh, when uh, the the body is scarred and the contract that's made, everyone who's seeing that is appraising what's happening. They're seeing that this contract exists and that you must not break it because of, you know, blah, 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 all the promises you made. That is that the appraising I they're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's dead on. It's the eye that enjoys watching the ritual of being cut or tattooed or whatever. Okay, then how, okay, that helps. Then my question, sorry, I'm stuttering here. Uh, It implies a system of collective appraisal and evaluation. What does, what implies that? Because if we're talking about the surplus value of code inside of a capitalist system that is constantly basically adjusting based on its relations between all these different things, at what point is that I coming into play? We're not talking about um, a capitalist system in this paragraph. We're talking about the difference between um, the sort of coded systems that we've talked about, the the, uh, tribal, primitive, and the feudal despot uh, societies that have these codes that are extra economic because they deal with, what are the three characteristics they talk about? They're qualified. Indirect, uh, qualitative, limited. Yeah. Yeah. All the, so coded systems have to have that. And these are the, they're sort of outlining the way that the previous societies had that, they, that the movements. Okay, so this, this paragraph is essentially them setting up the thing they're about to counter by saying, here's actually how capitalism functions. Where prior to this, we had uh, code characteristics of indirect qualitative and limited information. Uh, the, the code required all three of these. Um, and then they're setting that up because they're about to just go, uh, oh, they're about to just go, well, actually, capitalism is direct, quantitative, and unlimited. They're about to yeah. fuck with all three of those. Yeah, money as a sort of equivalent fucks with that. I think that's where they're going in the next paragraph. Yeah, and uh, and autochthonous t- tends to mean an indigenous, correct? Of the earth. earth of the earth, right? the, the primitive... Uh, or whatever, the savage, whatever the term you want to use that's probably just uh, going to get me canceled if I keep saying them out loud. But uh, whatever term that is, uh, it implies that that first uh, socius uh, prior to the despot is the one they're they're talking about, the autochthonous. So it's, these things are coded, here's how they're coded, here's how it worked even in despotic times, and now we're about to go into how we switch out. Okay. Sorry, works. No, you're good, dude. Go for it. Uh, One thing I'm reading in this section is, uh, uh, so I think kind of like the way you guys are reading it, um, seems like they want to say there is something below the level of the economy. There's something at a deeper level. Um, And um, so at the very bottom of 247, uh, in my edition, um, it says uh, surplus labor as a form of surplus value constitutes a flux that is, um, sorry, a flux that is qualitatively temporarily distinct from that of labor and consequently must enter into a composite that is itself qualitative, implies non-economic factors. I guess what I'm reading in this is um, there is this deeper field I guess maybe this is what you what the socius socius would be um, that ec- the economy is sort of built on top of that. 
Um, and it makes me wonder, so, you know, in Marxism, you have all these layers, right? The base and the superstructure. And it seems like maybe they're pointing to, you know, like the bottom, the bottom layer of all of that. That would be, I think, where the desiring production would be. And then economics specifically, you know, like labor, producing goods, distributing them, that would be a kind of superstructure built upon that desiring, you know, layer or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. One moment, one moment. I need to say something. Um, that's sentence specifically I can talk about. That's something I know. Ha. Um, in the case of feudalism, for example, because surplus labor as a form of surplus value constitutes a flux that is qualitatively and temporarily distinct from that of labor and consequently must enter into a composite that is itself qualitative and implies non-economic factors. This refers specifically to how surplus value is extracted in feudalism in, Marx, in the Marxist conception and probably... Uh, realistically, because in feudalism, at least at first, we have the case that the servants, I, I don't know the proper translations of the English terms here, but um, the, the servants have to take time out of their days or out of their year and work on the fields of the Lord. So um, the 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 um and that's where, where the the surplus value is extracted in that sense right so we have a distinction between actual labor where where the uh, where they work for for themselves and where the surplus labor functions as a form of surplus value and this is uh, this uh, this distinction between those those two um kinds of labor that are done require a system that force uh, that forces um that forces uh, well that shift uh, like this physical uh, dislocation of the uh, of the worker of the farmer of the serf who needs to go to the land of the lord and work the, work it like this shifts later when we have um uh, when we have um something resembling uh, taxes uh, like uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the english word here is in feudalism send um but uh, but that's i th i think that's what they are talking here specifically when they refer to um altos and Bolivar. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm reminded of the uh, way that they talk about um, like capitalism is sort of exercised by the previous societies. Like um, when capitalism comes along, labor becomes this uh, imminent thing that's part of being human, right? You have the capacity to labor because you exist and have energy. Whereas previously, previous societies, it's not really, it doesn't really work that way where you labor because you are a serf, right? Your body is coded in a certain way and you're sent to work for the Lord's field. And that keeps the sort of decoded capitalist flows at a distance. Um, so I think Al Dreams is right to gesture that they're talking about something deeper than the feudal economy. That makes sense because that would be at labor as an abstract. I, I like the idea it it helps click things in my brain the idea that when we're talking about how uh, essentially human life is coded in these times uh, as a serf or as a lord or whatever that 
that is something that uh, happens based on sort of where you're coded versus now in the capitalist flows and how they work. You're ultimately talking about uh, just being alive. Like there's no there's no you inside of a certain part of society. I like that conceptually. And thank you very much, Lou, for all that. It was really, I'm not sure I fully grasp it, but I really like it. The, the imminent side of it. Yes. So I'm I'm going to continue unless someone else has a, a secondary point. Um, I think we've uh, got that one pretty decently. The the last bit here, though, is uh, the genetic side of it. I think that's something that would be worth us actually sort of putting a pen in for the review session because it's a uh, interesting uh, allegory uh, analogy for them to use, and it does bring up its own issues. But to read on. So many reasons for defining capitalism by a social axiomatic that stands opposed to codes in every respect. First of all, money as a general equivalent represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows. But the equivalence itself points to the position of a relation without limitation. In the formula MCM, the circulation of money as capital has therefore no limits. The studies of Bohanan concerning the Tiv of the Niger River, or those of Salisbury concerning the Sign of New Guinea, have shown how the introduction of money as an equivalent, which makes it possible to begin and end with money, therefore never to end at all, is enough to disturb the circuits of qualified flows, to decompose the finite blocks of debt, and to destroy the very basis of codes. Secondly, the fact remains that money as an unlimited abstract quantity cannot be divorced from a becoming concrete without which it would not become capital and would not appropriate production. We have seen that this becoming concrete appeared in a differential relation, but it must be borne in mind that the differential relation is not an indirect relation between the qualified or coded flows. It is a direct relation between decoded flows whose respective qualities have no existence prior to the differential relation itself. The quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows. Outside this conjunction, they would remain purely virtual. This conjunction is also the disjunction of the abstract quantity through which it becomes something concrete. DX and DY are nothing independent of their relation, which determines the one as a pure quality of the flow of labor and the other as a pure quality of the flow of capital. Whence the fundamental change in the order of powers. For if one of the flows finds itself subordinated and enslaved to the other, the reason is precisely that they are not the same power, x and y squared, for example, and that the relation is established between a power and a given magnitude. This is something that became evident as we pursued the analysis of capital and labor at the level of the differential relation. One second. Oh, Dexter, what'd you bring me? Oh, thank you for a banana. That's so nice. Will you take this to mommy? <laughs> you d don't eat a plastic banana. That's true. Sorry about that. <clears throat> 
Uh, to start again, this is something that became evident as we pursued the analysis of capital and labor at the level of the differential relation between flows of financing and flows of means of payment or income. Such an extension merely signifies that capital has no industrial essence functioning other than as merchant, financial, or commercial capital, where money would take on functions other than those deriving from its form as the equivalent. But in the way the signs of power completely cease being what they were from the viewpoint of a code, they become coefficients that are directly economic. Instead of being doubles to the economic signs of desire and expressing for their part non-economic factors determined as dominant, that the flow of financing is raised to an entirely different power from the flow of means of payment signifies that the power has become more directly economic. And yet, as regards paid labor, it is evident that there is no longer any need for a code in order to ensure surplus labor, when the latter is merged qualitatively and temporarily with labor itself into one and the same magnitude, the condition characterized by surplus value of flux. Okay, I've got uh, just a handful of questions before we go in. Uh, does anyone have an idea what the formula MCM is? Uh, yes, that's money, capital, money, like the capitalist mode of exchange, like that that um, money is beginning and end of, um, uh, not capital, um, commodity, commodity. Um, like that uh, money is the beginning and end of the exchange, not as when cap uh, money functions as um, pure um, equivalency. So you have um, um, a commodity, sell it, then you have money, and then you buy again something you need. So you have, so you end on a commodity again. So it's a continuous loop of money to commodity, back to money to commodity, basically over and over and over, with the intention being that money is the beginning and end of all of this. I mean, it's, yes, yeah, it's from capital, but I just want to really expand on that because I think um, they're saying yes and no. <laughs> this is a complicated paragraph. Uh, the second question is DX and DY. Uh, what what's that? Anyone want to take a stab and help me there? DX and DOA are nothing independent of their relation. What's the D? What's the X? Or am I overreading that? I'm pretty sure that's like a calculus thing. Oh yes, calculus. That thing I'm good at. It's uh, like, like, a, like a, a functional inter. Uh, uh, not how do you say it? A, a functional. Uh, let me check it. Are they <laughs> using it as an example? Of... Uh, they, it is a differential equation thing, but that doesn't matter because they introduced it earlier. So um, their, their intent is their intention here with dx and dy. So I'm asking specifically because give MCM. Me or... Give me a second. On page uh, two hundred twenty-two uh, uh, twenty-seven. They have the sentence, its last sentence on that page. This is the differential relation dy dx, where dy derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital, and where dx derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital. 
Um, it's, it's the change of uh, x over the change of y. And and the the um, this this is one of the major points in um, the difference in repetition. His use of calculus and difference repetition to talk about how this these are pure differences. This is his image of of pure difference. Okay, so uh, to expand on that, then uh, they open by talking about how uh, essentially. Uh, the position relation in the formula MCM, circulation of money is capital, therefore has no limits. They then go on to talk about how money introduced inside of uh, primitive societies, uh, which is the example they give specifically on uh, the TIV and uh, Salisbury concerning the CN of New Guinea, that money being introduced as an equivalent of uh, representation of exchange actually completely disturbs circuits qualified flows, decomposes finite blocks of debt, and destroys the basis of codes within a society. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a parallel to what we see when they do the genealogy and they go from the tribal society to the despotic society, where uh, you know codes start to dissolve. You get an overcoding. You get money. You start to get infinite debt. And so, when we're talking about the differential relation between dy and dx, uh, where it's uh, labor power uh, over uh, fluctuation of constant capital. Uh, and again, they're talking about fluxes inside of the society, it's doing away with the concept of uh, labor power is purely a singular number inside of here's how much money I earn or whatever that is, that these flows are constantly shifting. And the relation, when they say directly, there's nothing independent of this relation, which determines the one as a pure quality of flow of labor and the other as a pure quality of the flow of capital. Uh, the progression of this is opposite that of a code. It expresses the capitalist transformation of a surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. Uh, again, going back to their earlier point they've made in this very section that, and in the last uh, chapter, actually, the last uh, section, uh, that we are no longer talking about things that are uh, singular or quantifiable, but that we're talking about fluxes, we're talking about uh, flows, we're talking about abstracts almost purely. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm making sure because this is uh, some of this makes my brain sort of glaze over a little bit. Um, and then they go into uh, the next few sentences are about how when you have DX and DY, the reality is that their relation needs to be uh, if they aren't of the same order of magnitude. The, the relationship between them significantly changes and subordinates one of them to the other. And I think they are specifically inferring that uh, the value of flux of capital ends up as a different magnitude of uh, the flow of labor, that capital takes on a different magnitude uh, because they use the example X and Y squared and DX and Y are their examples and uses for this. Uh, they say that this change and this change in magnitude is something that became evident as we pursued the analysis of capital and labor at the end of the different ritual relation between flows of financing flows of means of payment or income um, that 
once you're at a point where capital is orders of magnitude significantly more powerful or larger or uh, of a, just in general order of magnitude at the molar level significantly more than labor, you're entering into a different place where, where codes function in a purely abstract way. And that's the line here. But in this way, the signs of power completely cease being what they were from the viewpoint of code. They become coefficients that are directly economic to the point I think it was uh, Al Dreams that made, and Lou were talking about in the last section, we're talking here about uh, the the layers of how these things fit. And if we're talking about these things becoming purely economic, that means that they're no longer touching us where our desiring machines are, or where our pure flows are, or even where our coded flows are, that we are now at this abstract level of purely economic, which is a, like, if we want to talk about superstructures, we're talking about that now. Sorry, I rambled there, but that that's how my brain's piecing this together slowly. I, I think I think to put it another way, uh, the capitalist system doesn't work according to according to codes. That it works according to an axiom that immanentizes immanentizes its structure. Right. So labor would be an axiom. You just like posit that there's a thing such as labor and that this is true in a given, and then everything gets kind of caught up in it and impl implicated in it because it's imminent to the experience of being human. And in that way, it operates uh, to go back to, I mean, again, I'm sure it's the point they're going to be making. It goes back to how Oedipus operates with the three uh, syntheses, where it actually comes after the fact, and it's a thing that's a few steps down. But we're uh, prioritizing it or uh, uh, giving it that, that precedence uh, in how we discuss things and how we talk about things, which in our minds actually makes it axiomatic, makes it natural, and shapes everything that comes after it. What's interesting to me is how uh, they're thinking of capitalist power. Um, and uh, yeah, so just to echo Brooks, I think this is what you were getting at. So before we saw how power was outside of the economy, you know, like the Lord imposed it by whatever, uh, our, an army or uh, just constant threats. And here, the power has become directly economic. Um, and I guess the way that power works is through those, the, the axiomatic, the, I'm not sure who it was that, that brought that up just now. Um, so there's a kind of axiomatics of power uh, that capital imposes. Um, but then they even say there's no longer any need for a code to ensure surplus labor. Mm. Um, because well, axiomatics well, I'm not exactly are exactly sure what to make of it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, go for it. Because uh, axiomatics aren't the same as a code. It's like code has to have those three um, characteristics they were talking about, right? That it's finite or limited, and that it's quali qualitative and not quantitative. And that, damn, what was the third one? Uh, oh, fuck. I'm, I'm going to have to write this down, aren't I? Because we're going to have to go over it. Indirect relationships. Yes. Thank yes. you. Yes. Yeah. So code has to work that way. Like, and an ax the axiomatic of capitalism, it, it, it gets rid of all of that. And so you can't, you can't say that there's a coded relationship because money kind of dissolves, dissolves these characteristics. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's a decoding. It's a, the the flows are decoded because they aren't 
you know, qualitative. There's just this like vague abstract labor thing, which could be anything. It could be, there's, there's not, there's not from the point of view of capital, a a, a qualitative difference between working in a factory and working in a service industry, right? It it works the same for capitalism. Uh, They're also like limitless because money is kind of infinite. Uh, They talked about infinite debt in the previous chapters. And it's because finance is thought of, and it's very true, is is a completely abstract thing. It it exists as flows and flux rather than uh, anything that's specific. Whereas in, uh, uh, I, I don't want to sound like a gold standard asshole, but inside of like the despot times, you had coins, like you had gold coins, you had bullion, you had these things that had. Granted, they were more still semi-abstracted, but it wasn't like it is now, where you know the capitalist world operates on these weird like. Uh, oh, we lost two trillion dollars last week. It's like okay, cool, like whatever. Like, I have no idea. It's completely disconnected from anything that would we would call our sort of material reality. Yeah, I think that the wealth was taken up and into and into this system of things like the the the, the relationships in a feudal society just functioned differently because they had. Uh, these relationships like the flow of women and children, right? Which you can't equate that to the same sort of work that a serf is doing. But in capitalist society, you can because it's about money and consumption. And you can equate the sort of consumption a family does with the labor that goes into producing that goods in a factory. And you can't do that in previous societies. Uh, The capitalist axiomatic... Um, so someone, Bowen, Bowen chat's asking if someone can explain the capi- capitalist axiomatic. Um, I, I'm going to read from the Deleuze Dictionary, uh, which I think does it. Uh, Alberto Toscano uh, wrote this. Uh, an axiomatic is a term used to define the operation of contemporary capitalism within universal history and general semiology proposed by Deleuze and Guattari in AO and A Thousand Plateaus. Originating in the discord of, of science and mathematical set theory in particular, axiomatic denotes a method that need not provide definitions of the terms it works with, but rather gives orders a given domain within the adjunction or subtraction of particular norms or commands. Uh, that is a very lengthy, wordy way of uh, to say again something that I think Muskie said just shortly a moment ago that was great. Um, the core concept of uh, labor, as an example, was not really a thing that existed in the same way in the savage times. It's not like we we have to labor for our goods and our labor value is worth a thing. That's not a thing that exists inside of kind of most things but we live in a we live in a time where it's an axiomatic it's an assumption that this is how economies have to work uh these axiomatics are things that uh themselves don't need to be supported by anything and instead they are things that are assumed to be naturally true and actually shape the things that come after it an example uh, of an axiomatic for example, inside of psychoanalysis would be Oedipus. The the way Freud handled Oedipus, as we've read in previous chapters, uh, and you can read about pretty much anywhere, is that uh, we actually are born innately wanting to fuck our moms and kill our dads. That That's really the human condition. Uh, their argument, and I would tend to believe it, 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 that ain't the case. Instead, what's happened is we've got this weird thing now where we've got this axiomatic that says that's the case. And so therefore we teach ourselves that and we build our lives around this lie and even though it's not necessarily true it's formed who we are uh, an example would be a uh, original sin inside of the christian mythology that that becomes a thing that i've and i've known people who it's eaten away at them 
uh, emotionally, even though there's no reasons behind it, no thoughts behind it or anything, but this axiomatic shapes their entire lives because they believe it so strongly. It's a terrifying uh, concept. Uh, the capitalist axiomatic is a series of those. Is that fairly close, Muskie? Am I okay with that? Yeah, I was I was making quiet noises of agreement the whole time. <laughs> All right, good. It's uh, one of the fun parts of the reason that I, I hate discord or anything else is it always precedents one speaker over another so you can't hear slight interruptions or murmurs so uh little things that you don't realize how important they are to larger conversations but that's that's kind of how the axiomatic works um that's really helpful yeah and um i also wonder maybe um the two axiomatics are connected you know the uh the capitalist and the Unipol. Um, because what I find interesting here is, you know, power used to be in feudal times much more concrete, right? Like it was actually there was actually a threat. If you don't obey, you might just get killed or, you know, sent out of whatever, all, all your property taken away. And in capitalism, it doesn't seem like it works that way. It seems like capitalism needs a different kind of power. And maybe that's where the Oedipal uh axiomatic sort of works in cahoots with the capital to you know with the repression and kind of uh basically installing it as a as a kind of program actually i think that's an incredible i mean we we are going to be going over that um but it's a discussion i was having just a couple of days ago about uh the way that um, americans see their own government is as if it has to function the way that it's always functioned and that the way it functions is the way that it's always functioned and it's this really interesting if you want to talk about axiomatics uh the the reality of power structures today is they're not drastically different. If the military decided Trump wasn't a terror, a good leader and they wanted to get rid of him, they'd fucking do it. Uh, it just requires a certain threshold and vice versa. If Trump was able to get them, he could stay in power forever. It's There's still some level of reality to the power structures there. But as far as the American people are concerned, there's a, a oh, we're going to just vote him out. We're going to do this and everything will be fixed. We just do this, this thing, this fetish this object, this this way I participate, and power is bestowed upon the new person it needs to be. And it's such a fascinating thing to hear how people talk about this thing from the right and the left, like across the board. It's a really interesting, to, to your point, the, the way power is talked about now is so drastically different and absolutely operates differently because of that. It's really interesting. It's really, I could talk about that for fucking hours for sure. Also, I see there a connection by creating uh, desires. Uh, the Oedipal creates desires that are not really there or that transforms uh, some uncoded desires into these uh, pathologic Oedipal desires, as well as capitalism um, transforms uh, desires into, into these, these capitalistic ones, like we, we strive for money, for, for uh, monetary power, and to... Con um to consume like uh, we we get inherent an inherent uh desire for consumption with it yeah yes 
Well, and it's we talked earlier about the the I made the joke about the triangle shooting zombie that is Oedipus, but the the way Oedipus works is it takes your uncoded desires and it forces them into this this triangulation, and by doing so, it uh, it makes you carry this with you. And capital does this. The, this is how the axiomatics work. It's you know, labor is necessary. You have to work for everything you have. Well, we have enough as a country. We could just pay for everyone to you know be happy at home. No, you can't. Everyone must work. People have to earn their keep, like these these sort of rules about how people operate inside of capital. It's 100% the same thing. And it's, I mean, obviously the book's called Anti-Oedipus. I wonder if they're drawing parallels. I will, are they going to in the next few paragraphs? I don't know. We should find out. Um, one thing, more thing about the relationship between Oedipus and what they are talking about here. Because I think... Um, one thing that besides this functional relationship between how power works and how Oedipus um, plays into it, um, the I think that wasn't me that was tried. Uh, okay, but um, responding to chat. Okay, uh, sorry. Um, now I've lost my train of thought. Ah, okay, so. What Holland stresses and what I um, think that starts to show here is that this parallelization between Oedipus and um, capitalism is that the Marxist thesis that the um, historical, historical conditions um, enabled uh, Ricardo and uh, the other guy whose name I forgot right now were able to um, the, the historical conditions at the beginning of uh, capitalism um, enabled Ricardo and the other guy to, um, to, to see abstract labor as a thing, right? And the argument Deleuze and Guattari make is that the same conditions enabled Freud to discover Oedipus. And I think that's what we're starting to see here. I wholly agree. Um, the last sentence here, before I move on to the next paragraph, I want to make sure we go over a little bit because it's an interesting one. Uh, that the flow of financing is raised to an entirely different power from the flow of means of payment signifies that the power has become directly economic. And yet, as regards paid labor, it is evident there is no longer any need for a code in order to ensure surplus labor. When the latter, latter is merged qualitatively and temporarily with labor itself into one in the same simple magnitude. Um, the idea here is essentially that uh, sur surplus labor no, I, I, I'm not understanding this last sentence before we move on. I guess I should just ask, what the fuck does that mean? Let me just ask that. I, 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 maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's getting at that sort of that idea that we've been talking about, right? Of, of you don't need a code if labor is, you know, the same as, you know, this sort of, what is it, temporarily with labor itself. If labor itself exists and is something that capitalism is able to channel, uh, you don't need a code that says that serfs do this kind of work or that squires do this kind of work to uh, get the value out of labor. So they have 
when they're saying uh, the latter, are they referring to means of payment? Because they're there. It seems like they're referencing the sentence before. And so when means of payment is merged qualitatively and temporarily with labor itself into one in the same simple magnitude, the condition is characterized by a surplus value of flux. Surplus, well, uh, surplus labor and labor of merged into one, as opposed to uh, the sentence we had before where um, they talked about how in feudalism, uh, labor and surplus labor are distinct. Like you need to physically go somewhere else to do the work for your lord. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, then I want to move on to the next uh Paragraph, if unless anyone has any final thoughts. Fair enough. Hence, capital differentiates itself from any other socius or full body, inasmuch as capital itself figures as a directly economic instance and falls back on production without interpo interposing extra economic factors that would be inscribed in a form of code. With the advent of capitalism, the full body becomes naked, as does the worker himself, who is attached to this full body. In this sense, the anti-production apparatus ceases to be transcendent and pervades all production and becomes coexistive with it. Thirdly, as a result of these developed conditions involving the discretion of all codes within a becoming concrete, the absence of limits takes on a new meaning. This absence no longer simply designates the unlimited abstract quant uh, unlimited abstract quantity, but the effective absence of any limit or end for the differential relation where the abstract becomes something concrete. Concerning capitalism, we maintain that it both does and does not have an exterior limit. It has an exterior limit that is schizophrenia, that is, the absolute decoding of flows, but it functions only by pushing back and exercising this limit. And it also has, yet does not have, interior limits. It has interior limits under the specific conditions of capitalist production and circulation, that is, in capital itself. But it functions only by reproducing and widening these limits on an always vaster scale. The strength of capitalism indeed resides in the fact that its axiomatic is never saturated, that it is always capable of adding a new axiom to the previous ones. Capitalism defines a field of eminence and never ceases to fully occupy this field. But this deterritorialized field finds itself determined by an axiomatic, in contrast to the territorial field determined by primitive codes, differential relations of such a nature as to be filled by surplus value. An absence of exterior limits that it is filled by the widening of internal limits and the effusion of anti-production within production so as to be filled by the absorption of surplus value. These constitute the three aspects of capitalism's imminent axiomatic and monetarization everywhere comes to fill the abyss of capitalist imminence, introducing there, as Schmidt says, a deformation, a convulsion, an explosion, in a word, a movement of extreme violence. Okay. I, if anyone could go into the concept of uh, where they say, in this sense, the anti-production apparatus ceases to be transcendent and pervades all production and becomes coexistive with it. Uh, I don't. I don't see that. Uh, I think that um, what they're talking, they sort of. Um... There, it's another contrast between the capitalist society and the, you know, prior societies. Because if we look back on the last page, um, 
they say, uh, let's see. In short, there is a code where a full body as an instance of anti-production falls back on the economy that it appropriates. So in this sentence, they're talking about the feudal courts and the filiative and alliance relationships in you know, the prior societies. And they're saying that instead of the economy becoming or the capital becoming the full body, these other bodies, right, the feudal lord, the despot or the, you know, interrelations between members of a tribe fall back on the economic, the resources that they're pulling from the earth. And, and, you know, mm, I I lost my train of thought, (laughs) but, but, but those bodies are bodies of anti-production is, is, is what they're saying. And, and in capital, that process isn't done by an external body. So, one way of thinking about this is that uh, axioms are just assumptions. And to have a formal system, usually you have a set of axioms. And, and like, the, like information comes from the comparison of different data flows with each other. So this dx, dy is like the comparison of different data flows that generate um, information but but those flows get coded in other words they get categorized in order to know what to do with them so it's, it's there's kind of like two stages of information production where you have the comparison you know usually there's like a background variable and a foreground variable and the background variable is like time or space or something like that and the only way you get a sense of what the piece of data means is by comparing them to those background variables or comparing them to each other. But still, you have to uh, go to the next stage of of coding those flows in order for us to understand them cognitively. And so I think what they're saying here is that, you know, once the economy gets up and running in a capitalist mode, then it's just all the flows of information and, and stuff that are flowing around in the economy and and the and the coding doesn't matter anymore, and so like surplus value surplus uh, value of codes is that things are overcoded, you know they the the same thing will have different codes applied to it by different say perspectives, but we switched from that, you know, in the despotic system to the capitalist system where only the flows matter and the relationships to the flows and the pure information matter. And and the axiomatic system is the thing that holds all these things together. I think I'm grasping that better. So then when they say things like um, capitalism defines a field of eminence and never ceases to fully occupy this field, but this deterritorialized field finds itself determined by an axiomatic in contrast to the territorial field determined by primitive codes. That's what they're talking about, what you just said, that we, we went from a place where codes mattered and then suddenly now it's actually flows, but capitalism actually defines this uh, field of eminence through an axiomatic uh, is able to fully basically uh, take it over and and subsume the entire space uh, because it is dealing with flows and not dealing with what we would call coded objects or material reality almost. 
Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about it is they're saying, well, there's a series of axioms that hold all of these uh, differential relations together, um, but you can always add another axiom, you know, and so that's how it, the system adapts, is just always adding and subtracting other axioms, um, you know, to, to, the, to the set of axioms to, to, to keep the coherence of the flows um, you know, um, stable in some way. Ax axiomatic platforms create stability. So like there's axioms underlying set theory. They don't really know whether those axioms are coherent, but they haven't found any errors in them yet. And so, because the axioms are all very different from each other in set theory. And then, and then uh, again, I, I mentioned this the other day, the other important thing is there's these, uh, the, there's these things that are not defined in the axioms, that the axioms are actually controlling. And so, in a way, you can think of those as the kind of pure pure information that's, uh, you know, it could be anything uh, that, that's, that's flowing through this, set of, this, this system of axioms. Hmm. Interesting. I think the, in the last sentence, uh, because it's before we move on, um, to the fourth characteristic, uh, the line uh, monetiza monetarization, uh, the monetarization, the change of everything to being monetary everywhere comes to fill the abyss of capitalist imminence. And this introduced in Schmidt, which Lou linked uh, money, salaries and profits, a deformation, a convulsion and explosion in a word, a movement of extreme violence. It's interesting. All right, I'm going to move on to the next paragraph. Uh, there results finally a fourth characteristic that places the axiomatic in opposition to codes. The axiomatic does not need to write in bare flesh to mark bodies and organs, nor does it need to fashion a memory for man. In contrast to codes, the axiomatic finds in its different aspects its own organs of execution, perception, and memorization. Memory has become a bad thing. Above all, there is no longer any need of belief, and the capitalist is merely striking a pose when he bemoans the fact that nowadays no one believes in anything anymore. Language no longer signifies something that must be believed. It indicates rather what is going to be done, something that the shrewd or the competent are able to decode, to half understand. Moreover, despite the abundance of identity cards, files, and other means of control, capitalism does not even need to write in books to make up for the vanished body markings. Those are only relics, archaisms within a current function. The person has become private in reality, insofar as he derives from abstract quantities and becomes concrete in the becoming concrete of these same quantities. It is, the, it is these quantities that are marked, no longer the persons themselves, your capital or your labor capacity. The rest is not important. We'll always find a place for you within the expanded limits of the system, even if an axiom has to be created just for you. There is no longer any need of a collective investment of organs, as they are sufficiently filled with the floating images constantly produced by capitalism. To pursue a remark of Henry Lefebvre's, I'm never going to pronounce his name right, these images do not initiate a making public of the private so much as a privatization of the public. The whole world unfolds right at home, without one having to leave the TV screen. This gives private persons a very special role in the system, a role of application and no longer of implication in a code. The hour of Oedipus draws nigh. So first, how do you pronounce his name? Lefebvre. 
Thank you. Yes, it's, that's not, it's not going to happen. It's a bit silent, and yes. Lefebvre. Um, all right. Hell of a grouping here. Uh, and obviously, we're getting closer to Oedipus. Um, I, I want to go over a couple lines, and then if anyone else has questions, feel free to uh, mention uh, the, the talk around here of the person has become private in reality. So far as he derives from abstract quantities and becomes concrete in becoming concrete of these same quality quantities. The becoming concrete, they've said now a few times, I haven't focused on it. I'm not grasping what they mean by concrete here. Is that like an anti-flow thing where they mean to stand in juxtaposition of being part of a flow? Or do they mean something else here with concrete? Uh, I'm pretty sure it comes from Simone Dunn, right? Uh, someone in the Simone Dunn reading group? Uh, I, also, I can try to find where it was previously in the book. It could be that uh, the codes are all abstractions or types. And when you don't have the codes anymore, then, then it's concrete. So for Simondon, concrete objects are um, objects that are aware of changes and flows around it, but aren't moving as part of them, if I remember correctly. I may be wrong. I could try saying a little bit about the uh, difference in repetition background. Uh, oh, just picking up, picking up on what Kent was saying earlier about, so they have this this elaborate Theory, well, uh, Deleuze has this elaborate theory of um, how differentiation works. Uh, so for, for him, we begin with just difference in itself, which is the DX, just a kind of vanishing, constantly vanishing quantity. But that's not nothing. And then in the second stage, the DX comes into relation with another D, like a DY. And now all you have is relations. And then, so these, this is like a derivative, basically, in calculus. And the next stage, the third stage, is when you actually get a stable thing. And that's supposed to be something like integration in calculus, where the derivative is integrated, and you actually get a stable entity. Um, and one thing that's really important for him is, which I don't think has come up here yet, is the, uh, he calls them singular points. So there are these special points that really make a sort of define how the entire process unfolds. Uh, and I'm curious where that's going to show up, because I wonder if maybe the schizophrenic, um, you know, um, type or the, the schizophrenic experience may be that, some kind of singularity. Uh, but it's in the, like in a nutshell, it's sort of like getting from the abstract to the concrete. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I the yeah the the feeling I get here is that the capitalist, the description of the capitalist system is basically what he comes up with in difference and repetition from you know his interpretation of calculus and trying to understand pure difference. So there's external difference, uh, which is like horizontal, and there's internal difference, which is like um, vertical. Uh, with, that has hierarchy a level levels of hierarchy and um and so you know his his example of what is pure difference is this dx dy these uh these derivatives hmm. it, it's interesting because um there a person becomes private in this sense that it 
doesn't uh, get recognized in its uh, in, in, in as a person themselves uh, as they write it uh, as in their uh, in intensive being like in their uh, inner workings uh, and in their inner functioning but they get uh, marked uh, by these quantities and uh, they get just um, a place uh, inside the capital capitalistic system they are not uh, seen as an uh, intensive ensemble uh, but they just get uh, another quantity inside of the system they get they get a name but not their own name um i found a section in the uh three eight or where they're talking about the earth dot um where they introduce the idea of of becoming concrete that um might be relative. So here they're talking about the earth dot and they say, as a machine, it no longer determines social, a social system. It is, it's, oh, this is on page 221. If, if anyone wants to um, follow along, uh, it says as a machine, it no longer determines a social system. It is itself determined by the social system into which it is incorporated in the exercise of its functions. In brief, it does not cease being artificial, but it becomes concrete. It tends to concretization while subordinating itself to the dominant forces. The existence of an anag analogous evolution has been demonstrated for the technical machine when it ceases to be an abstract unity or intellectual system reigning over separate subaggregates to become a relation that is subordinated to a field of forces operating as a concrete physical system. And then they go on to say, but isn't this tendency to concretization in the social or technical machine precisely the movement of desire? Uh, they're introducing, I think, the idea that this, like, an abstract, right, like labor or, like, money will condense into something concrete. And that I think that's what they're referring to, again, here with the flow of goods and services con condensing into concrete things and then going back into flows. I think um, one of the lines I do really like here, though, is um, there is no longer any need of a collective investment of organs as they are sufficiently filled with the floating images constantly produced by capitalism. Just feels like a really interesting and poetic way to talk about <clears throat> uh, what they go on through the rest of the paragraph to talk about. But the idea of that it's not about full investing across the board of every part of you, that actually it's about, as they say, uh, application, not implication in the code. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, any last uh, comments before we move on to the next paragraph? All right. Will capitalism thus proceeds by means of an axiomatic and not by means of a code? One must not think it replaces the socius, the social machine, with an aggregate of technical machines. The difference in nature between the two types of machines persists, although they are both machines in strict sense without metaphor. Capitalism's originality resides rather in the fact that the social machine has... <clears throat> The social machine has, for its parts, technical machines as constant capital attached to the full body of the socius and no longer men, the latter having become adjacent to technical machines. Whence the fact that inscription no longer bears directly, or at least in theory has no need of bearing directly, on men, but an axiomatic of itself is by no means a simple technical machine, not even an automatic or cybernetic machine. Uh, Bourbaki 
says as much concerning scientific axiomatics. They do not form a Taylor system nor a mechanical game of isolated formulas, but rather simply rather imply intuitions that are linked to resonances and conjunctions of structures and that are merely aided by the powerful levers of technique. This holds even truer of the social axiomatic, the way in which this axiomatic fulfills its own imminence, pushes back or enlarges its limits, adds still more axioms while preventing the system from becoming saturated, and functions well only by grinding, sputtering, and starting up again. All this implies social organs of decision, administration, reaction, inscription, a technocracy, and a bureaucracy that cannot be reduced to the operation of technical machines. In short, the conjunction of the decoded flows, their differential relations, and their multiple skizzes or breaks require a whole apparatus of regulation whose principal organ is the state. The capitalist state is the regulator of decoded flows as such, insofar as they are caught up in the axiomatic of capital. In this sense, it indeed completes the becoming concrete that seemed to us to preside over the evolution of the abstract despotic Urstadt. From being at first the transcendent unity, it becomes imminent to the field of social forces, enters into their service, and serves as a regular of the decoded and axiomatized flows. The capitalist state completes the becoming concrete so fully that, in another sense, it alone represents a veritable rupture, with this becoming a break with it, in contrast to the other forms that were established on the ruins of the Urstadt. For the Urstadt was defined by overcoding, and its derivatives, from the ancient city-state to the monarchic state, already found themselves in the presence of flows that were decoded, or in the process of being decoded. These flows doubtless had the effect of making the state more and more imminent and subordinate to the actual field of forces. But precisely because the circumstances were not right for these flows to enter into a conjunction, the state could be content to save fragments of overcoding and of codes, to invent others, and by marshalling all its forces, was even able to prevent the conjunction from taking place. As for the rest, its project was to resuscitate the Urstadt insofar as possible. So obviously, Muskie, going back to the Urstadt chapter about concretization kind of applies. Um, I do want to read the footnote for about Nicolas Bourbaki here. It's the pseudonym of a group of French mathematicians who are known for their work in the theory of sets and for their advocacy of an axiomatic method, which allows us, when we are concerned with complex mathematical objects, to separate their properties and regroup them around a small number of concepts. That is to say, using a word which will receive a precise definition later to classify them according to the structures with which they belong. In this way, they propose to elaborate a language of mathematical formalization capable of integrating the different branches of mathematics. Oh, yeah. So so that reminds me that, um, you know, in difference and repetition, uh, uh, Deleuze, without naming him, uses Kassira's ideas from the third volume of... Uh, of the philosophy of symbolic forms. And and basically what Kassira has to say there is that uh, there was a change in the uh, a prioris, the Kantian a prioris. And basically he says that that has to do with set theory. And the, the way that it has to do with set theory is that um, uh, prior, to, prior to the... Uh, uh, set theory, you had, if you had a representation, you had to represent every little piece of the thing that was being represented. 
But once you had set theory, you could use sets as filters and talk about infinite sets. And so uh, Kassira says this is a change in the axiomatics or the 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 a priori the Kantian a priori's in the Western tradition. And so it seems like here his talk about axiomatics is probably um, you know uh, can be traced back to Kassira's argument about the um, the use of set theory and how that changes the a priori. And if that's the case, I think that may, that kind of makes sense of what they're they're what he's saying here is that uh, when you go into the capitalist system, you change your uh, your a priori basis uh, to these uh, to these axioms that are basically the axioms of set theory, and set theory can be used as a filter to to represent uh, infinite quantities. And even more so, uh, as comp- as capitalism needlessly gets more and more complex, we actually just axiomatize uh, the sets of the new rules that need to be brought in, uh, the way that the internet functions, the way you're able to make money through ad buys, or how ad- like all of these things become simply the way it works. Uh, through this axiomatization process. And so you're basically always able to, uh, as let's say the body of the socius of capital gets full to the limit, all you have to do is collapse it inside of a new axiomatic, and then we have a bunch more room to fill up with a whole bunch of new shit until we have to do it again and again and again. It's how it's, they've talked about it throughout. It's how capitalism is able to constantly uh, make room for what it needs to. It just creates more axioms as it as it necessitates. So it's it's interesting that uh, you know you know I guess this was seventy eight but you know now in in twenty twenty um, you know we can see we've had the rise of the internet and then the World Wide Web and so you know there's uh, these light cables going around the Earth under the seas and so there's this constant flow of information packets of information. And the, the, those packets don't mean anything by themselves. It's only by the coding of those that you know this is a video, this is an audio, this is a web page, right? But but at a certain level, all we care about is the flows themselves, not not their not their type categorization. It's just the flows in relationship to each other that are important within the overall internet system. And it's, and it's fascinating because if you talk about it from a like a, a capital perspective, uh, let's use the internet as an example. I always love having the conversation with people about whether or not they believe that web advertising works, because everyone's assumption is that it does. Uh, I mean, the answer is it doesn't. That it's it's a numbers game. So you put out uh, with the goal of getting one or two people out of every thousand who see your ad to click through. Uh, but you're paying people for the ability to utilize their data to place that out in front of people who are more likely to see it. And there's very little that can be done to increase that uh, on its own, but there's entire industries built around this ad system and this axiomatic of how advertising necessarily works, even though it really doesn't anymore. And we can see a lot of those things collapse over the course of the last six or seven months. Uh, Zizek wrote about this in his book on his piece on COVID, where the as soon as we stop demanding that people uh, have the 
consumption that they've been having and growing and that is just part of the American way of life. As soon as that became not a thing, people did just fine. It wasn't there's nothing in my life that changed as soon as I couldn't simply go everywhere and buy everything. Uh, it was a little bit of a withdrawal, but I'm making bread at home. I don't have to spend all the money. And suddenly it, how these axioms that we've assumed about how life needed to work under capital were shown to be kind of full of shit, <laughs> to be frank. So it's, it's a really interesting way to think about these axioms as they're constantly growing and changing and taking on new things. And then once again, doing it again, uh, as they're doing now where everything can be delivered and... Oh, the way that the new economy is working. Just how it is. There's a book called uh, Dynamics of Reason. I think the author is Friedman. But anyway, it explains this uh, idea of Kosira in the third volume of uh, uh, Philosophy of Symbolic Forms of how set set theory as as a filter changes our whole way of thinking about representation. And so if, if, if that's what he's keying into here, uh, then I, I think this is a very interesting model of, um, of the capitalist system. And, and I, I don't understand why he doesn't mention Kassira by name in that part of the book, but uh, it's just it, Kassira's theory is really interesting and worth looking at. Uh, Muskie asks, would the shift to delivery economy be an example of becoming concrete? I I think it would, but I would also say that it also introduces a new axiomatic as that flow shifts and our entire economy becomes one based on delivery. And it has uh, from the bourgeoisie to the petite bourgeoisie or whatever class you want to say. The this shift that happened immediately would be the moment of becoming concrete. But now we're almost back in the place of flows again, where we're out of that. And it's uh, the flows of how the economy is working around it and utilizing that. I think it's a, it's the shift back and forth. It's an interesting, I don't know, that would be a worthwhile conversation. But to go back to this, uh, to go back to this paragraph specifically, uh, to just say another way, the last part where they're talking about the capitalist states, uh, that the capitalist state completes the becoming concrete so fully, it alone represents a rupture with this becoming, a break with it, in contrast to the other forms that were established on the ruins of the Erstat. Uh, they talk deeply about kind of the position of the state inside of a capitalist uh, system and how coding works here. And it's a great little setup. Um, any last notes or questions? All right. Um, the capitalist state is in a different situation. It is produced by the conjunction of the decoded or deterritorialized flows and is able to carry the becoming imminent to its highest point only to the extent that it is party to the generalized breakdown of codes and overcodings and evolves entirely within this new axiomatic that results from a hitherto unknown conjunction. Once again, this axiomatic is not the invention of capitalism, since it is identical with capital itself. On the contrary, capitalism is its offspring, its result. Capitalism merely ensures the regulation of the axiomatic. It regulates or even organizes the failures of the axiomatic as conditions of the latter's operation. It watches over or directs progress towards the saturation of the axiomatic and the corresponding widening of the limits. 
Never before has a state lost so much of its power in order to enter with so much force into the service of signs of economic power. And capitalism, despite what is said to the contrary, assumes this role very early. In fact, from the start, from its gestation in forms still semi-feudal or monarchic, from the standpoint of the flow of free workers, the control of manual labor and of wages, from the standpoint of the flow of industrial and commercial production, the granting of monopolies, favorable conditions for accumulation, and the struggle against overproduction. There has never been a liberal capitalism. Action against monopolies goes back, first of all, to a time when commercial and financial capital is still allied with the old system of production, and when nascent industrial capitalism can secure its production and its market only by obtaining the abolition of such privileges. That the struggle against monopolistic privileges does not imply any struggle against the very principle of state control, providing the state sees fit, can be seen clearly in mercantilism, and much as it expresses the new commercial functions of a capital that has secured for itself direct interest in production. As a general rule, state controls and regulations tend to disappear or diminish. <clears throat> Sorry. State controls and regulations tend to disappear or diminish only in situations where there is an abundant labor supply and an unusual expansion of markets. That is, when capitalism functions with a very small number of axioms within relative limits that are sufficiently wide. This situation ceased to exist long ago, and one must regard as a decisive factor in this evolution the organization of a powerful working class that required a high and stable level of employment, and forced capitalism to multiply its axioms, while having at the same time to reproduce its limits on an ever-expanding scale, the axiom of displacement from the center to the periphery. Capitalism was able to digest the Russian Revolution only by continually adding new axioms to the old ones an axiom for the working class, for unions, so on. But it is always prepared to add more axioms. It adds axioms for many other things besides, things that are smaller, tiny even, absurdly insignificant. It has a peculiar passion for such things that leaves the essential unchanged. The state is thus induced to play an increasingly important role in the regulation of the axiomatized flows with regard to production and its planning, the economy and its monetarization and surplus value and its absorption by the state apparatus itself. Uh, I, I'm good with this paragraph. I didn't have a lot of questions. I'm sure someone else did. So uh, I'm going to go through a couple parts of this because I think it's a really... Uh, interesting conversation to say one of the one of the points I think they're making here another way. The state up until this point was essentially a regulated home of power, as actually I think Muskie and Al Dreams, I think and Lou have said at different points through uh, even the reading today, but our reading a little bit ago. Uh, the idea of the state instead becoming ultimately a uh, regulator of the flows and not one that exerts power or has its own semblance of power, but actually is subordinated almost entirely to the flows of capital is unique to capital. And that the state, uh, to their quote, never before has a state lost so much of its power in order to enter with so much force into the service of signs. Uh, I really like that description of how the state has changed. And uh, the other part I really like at this is when they talk about the switch uh, from really the early 1900s and why monopolism was part of that uh, and being fought against and why unions came about all these things versus now 
how we're not there anymore. That that, that we've we've reached a different place in the world of capitalism and one that uh, has grown and axiomatized so many things uh, that it it simply doesn't even apply. Like we're talking about uh, having trusts broken up or antitrust things is a is laughable uh, in the way today works. And to be frank, if you understand our economy, you know that that's pretty accurate. A, a good example of this is uh, tax code. You know, the tax codes are incredibly complex. And, you know, there's always this uh, move to try to simplify them. But, you know, it, it works in a lot of people's advantage having these the complexity of the tax codes. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Anytime you're talking with a person who's like, I just want things to go back to the way they used to be, I always bring up in the 1950s, we had a 90% marginal rate over $200,000. And it's like this insane level of taxes. And there wasn't the ability to have, like they didn't have complex tax laws back then. It was very much, is this your income? Capital gains ain't a fucking thing. We don't care. Uh, that changed over time, and now it's uh, deeply complicated and only fucks over poor people, of course. But the ability for people to have money overseas inside of secondary companies to have pass-through companies, which is a thing, and it's amazing. Um, tax code is is a great example of how this shifts and how the state ultimately is more about sort of keeping these flows going rather than keeping them regulated at all. There's a great article BuzzFeed News came out with uh, two days ago, three days ago. Uh, they went through um, financial control documents that had been submitted by banks uh, over the course of $2 trillion in 20 years. Uh, documents where the bank goes, hey, I think this is a suspicious transaction. I think this might be money laundering. And how none of them, none of them the government acted on. And the banks basically do this as like an insurance thing. Like, oh, I submitted. You didn't do anything. And then at the same time, the SEC knows not to really investigate because the banks need the money from laundering. They need the money from drug dealers. They need the money from despots in order to make their margins. And so there's this weird just allowance of this system that uh, the state isn't even stopping literal blood money from coming through Chase and the Bank of America and all these other companies. It's a really depressing article if you want to be really depressed. Um, it just rang as a combination here of state controls and regulations disappear or diminish only in situations where there is an abundant labor supply and unusual expansion of markets. We don't have that. We, we, we have a very opposite thing. It's a very fascinating time for us. Uh, any questions over this paragraph before we move on, though? Oh, God. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to guess that there's no more uh, questions on this. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, move on to the next paragraph. The regulative functions of the state do not imply any sort of arbitration between social classes. Uh, Al dreams. Al dreams. This is, we've been hinting at this paragraph. Uh, that the state is entirely in the service of the so-called ruling class is an obvious political fact, but a fact that does not reveal its theoretical foundation. The latter is simple to explain. From the viewpoint of the capitalist axiomatic, there is only one class, a class with a universalist vocation, the bourgeoisie. 
Plekhanov notes that the French school of the 19th century, under influence of Saint-Simon, should be credited with the discovery of class struggle and its role in history. Precisely the same men who praised the struggle of the bourgeois class against the nobility and feudalism, and who come to a halt before the proletariat and deny that there can be any difference in class between an industrialist or banker and the worker. But only a fusion into one and the same flow as with profits and wages. This proposition contains something other than an ideological blindness or denial. Classes are the, are the negative of castes and statuses. Classes are orders, castes and statuses that have to be decoded. To reread history through the class struggle is to read it in terms of the bourgeoisie as the decoding and decoded class. It is the only class as such, in as much as it leads the struggle against codes and merges with the generalized decoding of flows. In this capacity, it is sufficient to fill the capitalist field of eminence. And in point of fact, something new occurs with the rise of the bourgeoisie, the disappearance of enjoyment as an end, the new conception of the conjunction according to which the sole end is abstract wealth and its realization in forms other than consumption. The generalized slavery of the despotic state at least implied the existence of masters and an apparatus of anti-production distinct from the sphere of production. But the bourgeois field of eminence, as delimited by the conjunction of the decoded flows, the negation of any transcendence or exterior limit, and the effusion of anti-production inside production itself, institutes an unrivaled slavery, an unprecedented subjugation. There are no longer even any masters but only slaves commanding other slaves. There is no longer any need to burden the animal from the outside. It shoulders its own burden. Not that man is ever the slave of technical machines. He is rather the slave of the social machine. The bourgeois sets the example. He absorbs surplus value for ends that, taken as a whole, have nothing to do with his own enjoyment. More utterly enslaved than the lowest of slaves, he is the first servant of the ravenous machine, the beast of the reproduction of capital, internalization of the infinite debt. I, too, am a slave. These are the new words spoken by the master. Only as personified capital is the capitalist respectable. As such, he shares with the miser the passion for wealth as wealth. But that which in the miser is mere idiosyncrasy is, in the capitalist, the effect of the social mechanism, of which he is but one of the wheels. So yeah, uh, class class is gone. I think Al dreams. So hopefully that answers all your questions. We're good for the day. Thank you all. <laughs> That's it's a brutal reading of the way capitalism works, and I've been trying to figure out since I read this a couple days ago, and I've been trying to figure out how to process it. Other than saying literally, there's that class is basically something that doesn't really exist in any significant way. Ultimately, everyone is a slave to capital, even the wealthy, uh, because they are basically burdens of this living semiotic system that's demanding they do things. It feels Thulu-like, uh, Lovecraftian almost, how capital essentially enslaves us all. Maybe because it's Cthulhu-ian or Lovecraftian, it's uh, unavowable too. Maybe that makes sense. <laughs> Actually, so if we want to bring back unavowable, 
there is that level of it where um, the the things you don't want to talk about are the reasons that things are done or the reasons you participate as a capitalist or a wealthy person. I've been fortunate to know a shit ton of super rich people. Uh, and they don't live the life that I think a lot of people or I had the assumption. Um, like when I was growing up, what I thought rich people's lives were like, thanks to television and all those things. And the reality is they they're beasts of burden as much as any of us in their own way. It's a really interesting. Uh, I I I like this paragraph. I can't fully grasp it because I I do I have always believed that there is a difference between the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, the petite bourgeoisie, and uh, the ultra wealthy. I think there's, if we want to just have like multiple levels of class, I've always felt that there's those. But if we just say, look, the reality is the way that capital functions uh, through its semiotics is all of us are made subjective. And through our subjectivity, we are given orders and enslaved in a way that uh, there is no master. Uh, kind of uh, fine way to look at it. So uh, Albert Mimi wrote a book called The Colonizer and the Colonized, which is, a, I think, a really good book about that. But um, he has the idea in there that the colonized only want to only want to only want to be the colonized, the colonizer, the colonized want to be the colonizer. And, uh, you know, if you put that in relation to this paragraph, then you can see that the, the workers all want to be bourgeois. And so that that's why you can't organ they they can't be organized is because they're not really a class the 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 they I mean this is saying there's only a bourgeois class and that's because the people um who are you know actually the workers uh and you know uh in would be in the proletariat they they want to be bourgeois so they don't want to be organ uh, they don't want to be identified with the proletariat I think it has to do with uh, the sort of sentence that they propose at, right here where they say the classes are the negative of castes and statuses. Classes are orders, castes, and statuses that have been decoded. So I think following from that logic, it makes sense that the proletariat wouldn't really exist as a class because the proletariat only exists, you know, in um, contrast to the bourgeoisie, right? Uh but if classes are the decoding apparatus of castes, the bourgeoisie is the, the class that is responsible for doing that. The capitalist class is the only one relevant to that argument. And that's why they would say that the bourgeoisie is the only class. I guess the way I'm reading it is that, um, you know, whatever was uh, in Marxism, the, the, the struggle is between between the bourgeoisie and the um, proletariat, and it's all on this kind of sociological level for the most part. Uh, and I guess what's happening here is that relation is made somehow, like it's pushed into a different sort of register. Like it's now between the axiomatizing force, a kind of power, and then the, I don't know, this field. And it's, it seems like that's where you now find this sort of, uh, uh, this relationship. And I'm not sure if they would think of it as a struggle, but it's, you know, this decoding and this kind of uh, deterritorializing. De yeah, I think, I think 
I think, yeah, I agree. I think that the, that the losing glossary are coming at it from a different perspective. They've, they've sort of went a level past the material struggle where Marx would have stopped at, um, whether or not it's useful for us in terms of praxis, I think they're going to go on to talk a little more about what praxis would be for the left. Uh, uh, but it is one of the things I've struggled with in this book a lot while I'm reading it. It's like, what the heck is the praxis I'm supposed to get from this? And I'm not sure I have a good answer. I don't think this book necessarily is uh, intended to be the place where we gain praxis. If I had to, how I've looked at this is that this is foundational for a thousand plateaus, which is where praxis is actually talked about. But without an understanding of this deeply, like now that I'm reading this, when we do our thousand plateaus reading, like things are going to, things are already opening up for me that I know that they've mentioned in multiple plateaus where I'm like, oh, fuck, why the rhizome is important. Oh, fuck, that's why this, that's why it's like these things are important for us to be thinking because now that I have a grasp of this and specifically here, when we talk and maybe, maybe this is a place where some practice can be found when we talk about how people are handling class, one of the difficulties we have, especially in America, uh, politically, but I would say the same is very true of uh, Canada and probably parts of significant parts of Europe is we don't really have, uh, a proletariat class that existed the same way as it did, uh, uh, like a year, like a hundred years ago doesn't things don't exist they talked about how these things have shifted based on just in general the economy but like now when we're talking about the proletariat must rise up who does that include and there's an awkwardness there when if you do real introspection i heartily doubt anyone on this call uh i doubt anyone who's probably reading this really has the ability to call themselves a proletariat and that's troublesome because it, we're also not really bourgeoisie by the way that it was defined a hundred years ago. And so instead, like it's a, it's a really, um, I, I don't know Pastoni's critique of class. Uh, anyone want to give a top level? Does anyone know it? I'll lose asking that question. Well, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll save it for the review, but it's a, it's, the short version is this paragraph is very much going over the idea that, as Muskie said, that um, the bourgeois are part of that responsibility decoding. Uh, and because of that, they're really the only class. Is that the very short version, Muskie? Yeah, I think so. I just, and I also really like that last line. As such, he shares with the miser the passion for wealth as wealth. But that which in the miser is a mere idiosyncrasy is in the capitalist effect of a social mechanism of which he is but one of the wheels. The idea that he's got a MR saying, I've got a horde, but the idea that it's actually happening as part of the machine to the capitalist makes him as much a slave as anything. Um, it will be said there is no a class that rules and a class that is ruled, both defined by surplus value. The distinction between the flow of financing and the flow of in wages. But this is only partially true, since capitalism is born of a conjunction of the two in the differential relations and integrates them both in the continually expanded reproduction of its limits. So that the bourgeois is justified in saying, not in terms of ideology, very organization of his axiomatic. There is only one machine, that of the great mutant decoded flow, cut off from goods, and one class of servants, the decoding bourgeoisie, 
the class that decodes the castes and statuses and that draws from the machine an undivided flow of income convertible into consumer and production goods, a flow on which profits and wages are based. In short, the theoretical opposition is not between two classes, for it is the very notion of class, insofar as it designates the negative of codes, that implies there is only one class. The theoretical opposition lies elsewhere. It is between, on the other hand, the decoded flows that enter into a class axiomatic on the full body of capital, and on the other hand, the decoded flows that free themselves from this axiomatic just as they free themselves from the despotic signifier. That break through this wall and this wall of a wall and begin flowing on the full body without organs. The opposition is between the class and those who are outside the class, between the servants of the machine and those who sabotage it or its cogs and wheels, between the social machine's regime and that of desiring machines, between the relative interior limits and the absolute exterior limit, if you will, between the capitalists and the schizos in their basic intimacy at a level of decoding, in their basic antagonism at the level of axiomatic, whence the resemblance in the 19th century socialist portrait of the proletariat between the latter and a perfect schizo. I, I want to know if anyone else picked up on like that that line um the theoretical opposition lies elsewhere it is between on the one hand the decoded flows that enter into a class axiomatic on the full body of capital and on the other hand the decoded flows that free themselves from this axiomatic just as they free themselves from the despotic signifier that break through its wall in this wall of a wall and begin flowing on the full body without organs because that sounds like praxis and i'm wondering if we can flesh out what exactly that sentence means for me so i can feel like i have some praxis (laughs) Well, they they go on to paraphrase or give secondary examples of what that might mean to the next line. Uh, the opposition is between the class and those who are outside the class. And the footnote there is uh, in the original translation, um, not going to try. Uh, this term shares an affinity, uh, specifically the way that they're doing uh, class here and outside the class uh, is instead actually Horkast outcast or outlaw. Uh, There's affinity there in the way that the term is originally translated. So when we talk about those who are inside the class uh, and those are who are outcast, outlaw, uh, I think in my head of uh, homo soccer as a concept. Uh, Those who are in the way that capital requires them to be and those who exist outside of it between servants and those who sabotage it between the interior limits and the absolute exterior, those who take part and accept it, and those who are schizo. Uh, homo soccer is a concept of the the outcast man, uh, the untouchables. Uh, the idea that it, it goes—it's a—it's a great little book to read. Um, I found it through Zizek originally, but it's a concept that uh, you may be banished, but you're banished and untouchable because you're so holy. And so it's this idea of uh, sort of uh, placing those who are uh, too important outside of the normal realms of society, the concept of homo soccer. And they seem to be like leaning on that at least a little bit between the interior limits and the absolute exterior, um, between the latter and a perfect schizo, the proletariat and a perfect schizo. That that this is what it feels like, at least how I'm reading it. Please, someone else. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to uh, uh, difference in repetition and some of 
uh, I guess it's in the logic of sense as well, though I haven't read that. Uh, but uh, seems like for Deleuze, you know, like this question, like how do you become schizo? Uh, not in the sort of mental illness sense, but in a sense of like, I guess a transcendental sense. Um, so I think he links it to the eternal return. Somehow that, I mean, that's very enigmatic. All of that's very enigmatic. Uh, but uh, somehow, you know, the eternal return is supposed to play this really important role in, in changing our experience away from, uh, you know, the axiomatic and into like a free time or uh, like an sort of escaping out into the plane of imminence, uh, you know, sort of entering into the pure difference of things. Um, so there's, it's kind of like there's a work of destruction that a person has to do of their own subjectivity. And uh, he talks about a break, you know, like the subject needs to break. And that break allows the sort of the schizo, um, I actually think that's what schizo means, doesn't it? A kind of uh, break from or a separation. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's making sense, uh, you know, going back to some of those works, maybe. Well, so I'm, and I'm going to want to jump ahead because we only have a few minutes and I want to get into the next paragraph because we're going to end this and we're going to have to continue next Monday. But uh, I want to get through this because specifically they use the word praxis here and I want to get to that for poor Muskie, who's about to have an aneurysm. Um, so I'm going to continue the next paragraph and then we'll discuss and then we'll close out. <clears throat> That is why the problem of a proletarian class belongs, first of all, to praxis. The task of the revolutionary socialist movement was to organize a bipolarity of the social field, a bipolarity of classes. Of course, it is possible to conceive a theoretical determination of the proletarian class, the level of production, those from whom surplus value is extorted, or at the level of money, income and wages. But not only are these determinations sometimes too narrow and sometimes too wide, but the objective being they define as class interest remains purely virtual so long as it is not embodied in a consciousness that, to be sure, does not create it, but actualizes it in an organized party suited to the conquering the state apparatus. If the movement of capitalism in the interplay of its differential relations is to dodge any assignable fixed limit, to exceed and displace its interior limits, and to always affect breaks of breaks, then the socialist movement seems necessarily led to fix or assign a limit that differentiates the proletariat from the bourgeoisie, a great cleavage that will animate a struggle not only economic and financial, but political as well. Now, the meaning of just such a conquest of the state apparatus has always been and remains problematical. A supposedly socialist state implies a transformation of production, of the units of production and the economic rationale. But this transformation can only take place starting from an already conquered state. It defines itself confronted by the same axiomatic problems of extraction, of a surplus or surplus value, of accumulation and absorption, of the market and monetary reckoning. Consequently, either the proletariat prevails and transforms the apparatus in conformity with its objective interest, but these operations are carried out under the domination of the consciousness or party vanguard, that is, for the benefit of a bureaucracy or technocracy that stands in for the bourgeoisie as the great absent class, or the bourgeoisie keeps its control of the state and it's free to secrete its own techno-bureaucracy, and above all, to add a few more axioms for the recognition of the proletariat as a second class. 
It is correct to say that the alternative is not between the market and economic planning, since planning is necessarily introduced in the capitalist state, and the market subsists in the socialist state, if only as a monopolistic market of the state itself. And in effect, how does one define the true alternative without assuming all these problems resolved beforehand? It's a, I'm going to definitely say that Lou is spot on right now with this being postponed. I just, while you guys were talking, I pulled up a quick thing and very much his book, uh, Time, Labor, and Social Domination, just to quote a quick thing from the, the dust jacket, Postona argues that the structure of capitalism is historically specific and determines social relations. The subjectivity to overcome it is possible on the basis of a critique and conception of what is historically specific to capitalism's form of social relations. This really, really does sound like that, actually. And for sure, he's not taking his cues from this, but just, wow, spot on. Also, something that's relevant is uh, Baudrillard, his uh, book, The Mirror of Production, where where he, where he's basically saying that, you know, communism is state capitalism, and there's, there's no real difference between communism and capitalism when you get right down to the, you know, the axiomatic. Both of them, both of them are assuming human beings are only for production. I want to just tire, just trudge through the rest of this, but um, that is going to mark our two-hour mark, and I have uh, sadly real life to get back to. Um, we will continue this next Monday, and uh, I think we will be able next Monday to get through the rest of this uh, section, uh, which actually I believe gets us closer to the end of the chapter, uh, and we will do a review section uh, session the following day because we are going to have a lot of, of shit to go through. And uh, now I've got to read Postone. Um, so, so many things to go over. Uh, any last notes or comments before we trudge out and everyone heads back to their real world? All right. Uh, well, thank all of you for joining, and uh, we will see you guys uh, next week.